So Peter's going to remind us of one last thing tonight. We've been reminded in this book of some great truths from God's word. And tonight we're going to take kind of a step back, if you will. Taking everything we've learned, taking all these great truths from God's word, and how it applies to our perspective, our perspective of the future. So in the spirit of Peter's plea to remind us, we're going to jump right into it tonight. Verse 1, chapter 3. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So last week we talked about false teachers. We talked about how to defend ourselves from false teachers is to know God's word, to know what it says. And he's begging us once again here, those of a sincere mind, those in Christ, remember the word. Remember what the prophets have said. Remember what Christ said. And remember what we are telling you. And he's saying that because he's going to tell us something that we need to remember. He's saying, listen up. Because the false teachers are taking something specific, a very important truth that you need to have right. A very important truth that they are beginning to twist. Now to set this up, what he's going to talk about, and it'll give it a little bit more color, I think, in the backdrop of this, there's one prophecy that puts this into perspective a little bit more. Now to a Jew... And to a lot of people then, especially these heretics, now they may choose to ignore the events of God in the past, even the fulfilled prophecies that we know were in Jesus Christ. But there's one prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled completely, and that prophecy is the Davidic covenant. So in 2 Samuel 7, what you have there is God's promise that through the line of David, a king will reign. A king will reign forever. His reign will be eternal So Christ comes and everyone's so excited, right? This is him. This has to be him. All these prophecies are being fulfilled. This is our king. They usher him in at the triumphal entry to say, Hosanna, the king is here, right? This is the one we've been looking forward to. But he doesn't take the throne then, does he? Isaiah 53 becomes the prominent reality of God's incarnation on this earth And he comes this time as the suffering servant. So where is the king? Look at verse 3 and 4 here. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they ask this question. Where is the promise of his coming? I don't see him. Your scriptures say he's coming. The king is going to reign. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, when I read that initially, it, it, it made me think of another question in Genesis 3 that was asked. Right before the fall of mankind and the serpent says to Eve, has God really said Because the deceivers and false teachers, they phrase it in a question, forcing us for a response, right? And if we don't know the truth, if we don't know what God really said, what happens? What happened in the garden? The fall, sin. 
So the false teachers were beginning to play off of this. And Peter, he's told us his eyewitness, ear witness testimony that I saw the king, I know he's coming back, right? So they asked the question, did God actually say, where is he? And then they present a little bit of evidence, or at least they think it's some evidence here. They say, since the fathers fell asleep, since your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and since creation, everybody just lives and dies. God has never intervened in history, and he's not going to in the future. Everything is just continued. So God's intervening is just a fairy tale. I would say that's a very popular mindset today, isn't it? Me and my wife sat down and watched the other night the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings, that recently came out. And I, I knew it wasn't biblical. I was just looking to be entertained. So we sat down to watch it, and what was, and we didn't finish it. It was too bad. What was staggering to me as you watch this movie, that they actually went to great lengths to remove God from the story. A story from the Bible that they remove God, remove his judgment, remove his dealings with mankind in the past to remove it because they don't want people to remember. They don't want people, and then they explain it away with different circumstances or things that can be explained. What I think is ironic about that too is that Hollywood makes special effects and magic and supernatural every day, and yet they chose to remove it from a movie like that. But look at verse five and six here. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These people, they must forget about everything God has done in the past to present this idea, where is the coming of your king? These mockers and these unbelievers choose to forget two very important events in the past. First, creation, right? We know that God created everything. He breathed the stars into existence. And we know that the flood happened. Peter's already talked about the flood, hasn't he? He talked about it in his first letter. And the flood came judgment. But you see these false teachers and these mockers disregard the previous actions of God in these things because they have to. They can't be real for these people. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels. Not even them escape God's judgment. This is very, very revealing. Because in order to continue in their sin, in order to continue enjoying their flesh and the things of this world, Judgment and the end times cannot be a reality. Do you see? If there are consequences for my actions in this life, if there is judgment to come, then this life I'm living in sin really just isn't that fun anymore, is it? The world wants to forget about that. It's like if you've ever been right in the middle of doing something, right? We're right in the middle of doing something we know is wrong. And we tell ourselves these things like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, right? What's the worst that could happen? 
Even though we know it's wrong, but we tell ourselves that because if there are consequences for my actions, I'm not going to do it. But you say, no, what's the worst that could happen? I steal a little piece of candy? Oh, come on, it's just a little piece of candy, right? What's the worst that could happen? We have that mindset all the time. I remember when I was a kid and um, me and my friend were walking around the the neighborhood with our slingshots and we were shooting at birds. So we were following this flock of birds and we followed it to a hillside and there was a highway down below it and we were shooting at the, the flock still and my buddy thought it would be such a great idea to shoot at the cars. And so immediately I had this, you know that sinking feeling when you know what you're doing is wrong? It's, it hit my stomach and I was like, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And you know what he told me? Oh, what's the worst that could happen, right? Nothing's gonna happen. So when he removes that idea of consequences for this action, I was like, this actually sounds pretty good now. So we both start shooting at the cars, and we're laughing our heads off. This is wonderful. Until one, I remember it, like one, we shot, and there was this thud noise, and I was like, that didn't sound normal. And and he said it again, don't worry, it's fine. Before you know it, screeching tires, people jumping out of the car, we ended up shooting somebody's windshield out. And I'll tell you, there were consequences for my actions that day. But anytime we forget about consequences, and these people that do this, they force themselves to forget about the truths of God. They force themselves to forget about what God has done in the past. They force themselves to forget so much of God's word. Anyone who wants to continue in sin must run away from the possibility of condemnation and judgment. If your lifestyle contradicts the word of God, you must either change your lifestyle or change the word of God. And these heretics and these apostates choose to change the word of God. Scoffing at the doctrines of judgment and the coming of the Lord. And the landscape of America is exactly that. We don't talk about sin anymore, do we? We stray far away from it because when you talk about sin, it brings with it that idea of consequences, judgment. And that just doesn't sound very loving to the world. But I would say on the contrary. Because those of us who stand for the truth of God's word, those of us that call sin, sin, are more loving than the people that choose to ignore it, wouldn't you say? Because we love them enough to share with them their only way out. Their only way out of judgment. And that's Christ. So we all engage in sin, not only forgetting sometimes the consequences, but I think what was, what was cost, what it cost to pay for those sins. To think about judgment, God's wrath, and everything, your sin, my sin, all poured upon Jesus Christ. You have to forget about that too. Because if there are consequences for my sin, then Jesus didn't need to die for it, right? You have to forget about that as well. This statement, where is the promise of his coming, encompasses way more than just his return, I think. Because it's the foundational attitude of those who willfully engage in sin to say, has God really said? Do you know what his word says? Has God really said sexual immorality is wrong? Has God really said that drunkenness is a sin? Has God really said homosexuality is a sin? 
And then in verse 7 there, but the truth is, the end is coming, right? And the promise has always been there in Scripture. And Christ's return is going to make the end a reality. And he says, by his word, the destruction of the world and the ungodly men is coming. Not this time with a flood, right? But with fire. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers reference the second coming of Christ and the end times about 300 times just in the New Testament. And that doesn't include the Old Testament. Obviously, we don't have time to look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament or other scripture, but look at your cross-references. It's all there. Isaiah 66, Micah 1.4, Malachi 4.1. Paul talks about it. Second Thessalonians, look, it's all over the pages of scripture. The end is coming. And the Greek word there in verse 7, for stored up for fire also means it's going to be destroyed with fire. J. Vernon McGee says the earth is like a powder keg. It's ready to just explode. The funny thing is even the secular world senses there's an end to the world, right? They actually love to fantasize about it in movies. And we don't know how it's going to end, nuclear war, atomic bomb, even global warming maybe. But the fact remains the end will come and it will come when our king returns. And see, the great confidence we have as students of the Bible, the great confidence we have when we know his word as believers is not only do we know how it's going to happen, but we know how to escape the wrath. So in light of this truth, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back, we have hope. We have a different perspective than the world, don't we? We have hope for the future. We have hope for the end. We anticipate the end. We have an eternal perspective. I want you to look at verse 8 and 9 now. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So just because it hasn't happened yet is no indicator that it's not going to happen. But the false teachers were trying to play off of this. And they're forgetting a very indispensable truth about God, aren't they, in his character. God is eternal, He exists outside of time, and just because he has not acted yet doesn't mean anything. We are finite creatures, and our concept of time is nothing like God's. God works in time, but he's not limited by time. Charles Spurgeon said, If there be an infinite God, it is not possible that poor I with my finite mind shall ever be able to understand everything about him. If the Lord chooses to tarry till thousands of years have passed away, yea, till millions of years have elapsed, yet let him do as he wills. Is he not infinitely wise and good? And who are we that we should put him to the question? Let him tarry his own time. Only let us watch and wait, for he will come, and they that wait for him shall have their reward. So instead of using this excuse of not happening yet, God is, or Peter's saying quite the opposite. You are witnessing God's great mercy and patience. His great mercy and patience towards this world every single day. 
And until the fullness of time when the great commission is filled, fulfilled and some from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to him, will this end time come? And what he's not saying there in verse 9 is that all will come to repentance, meaning the whole world. Because it's taking this whole thing out of context. He's talking about judgment and those that reject Jesus Christ. And from so many other passages of scripture, there will be some that will not see salvation. He is patient towards you, meaning believers, those that will believe, those that he has set his affection on, now those he's chosen since the foundation of the world. Until that time, and the fullness of time, just like when Jesus came, and the fullness of time when everything in God's plan comes together, the end will happen. And listen, we have a great responsibility and role in that plan, don't we? And that's the great commission to preach the gospel. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So just because it's not happened yet, the scoffers use that to their advantage. But again, we have the prophetic word, more sure. We know without a doubt will come to pass. And look at verse 10. We know how quickly it's going to happen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Paul describes it very similarly, even Jesus, that it's going to happen very, very quickly, isn't it? We're not, going to be an, we're not going to be able to anticipate it. The return of our Savior in this final judgment comes with a warning, but also comes with hope for us. So in light of this, in light of all this that's coming to pass, what is our duty? What is our call? What is our commission on how to live with these truths from God's word. And that's what we see in 11 through 18. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's a great passage there of the authority of Paul's letters, right? They are scripture. Peter recognizes it. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So first of all, how are we to live? We need to remember that this world is passing away. That all this is going to burn. Don't give yourself over to the pleasures in this world. Don't spend your entire life living for the praise that the world offers. Because it's all going to go away. And do we really live our lives in light of this truth? And I want to think about that tonight. Do we live in light of the truth that Christ is coming? And all of this is going to pass away? 
Do we live with this eternal perspective or just reacting day by day to the circumstances that the world throws at us? I was extremely challenged by the thought of this this week as I was studying this. Just in my own life, on my time here, as a believer in what I am to be doing for God's kingdom, until eternity, until he calls me home, until his return, what am I to be doing? But also, do you see how this perspective can affect you every single day? If you realize that all of this world and everything in it is going away? If my kids knock over my plasma TV, it doesn't matter, it's going to burn anyway. It doesn't matter. When you hold on to so many things in this world, it causes so much strife. To have that, to take a step back and look at the perspective that I have a future perspective. I have an eternal perspective. The things in this world don't matter. And it brings with it a sense of urgency too, doesn't it? What am I doing right now? What am I doing for Christ right now? Well, we have the assurance of eternal life. We also have a very short amount of time on this earth to be effective for his kingdom. Many people, even Christians, live their entire lives by building something that they think is going to outlast them even, right? Legacies. Or they do it to overcome their fear of death, perhaps. Building money, power, success, fame, whatever it is in this world. But we have, again, great insight to the folly of this behavior, don't we? Because it's all going to burn. The world is passing away and all it contains. Do not lay up yourself treasures on this earth. Lay them up in heaven. Peter's saying this practice not only leads to sin and idolatry, but it's worthless because the king is coming back. Only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last so we have believer we as believers don't live for the world and the temporary things of the world we live with an eternal perspective in view of Jesus Christ we live to glorify our savior we live to lay ourselves up treasures in this in heaven where it actually means something we live to make his name known because he is the only hope He's the only hope for this world. We as believers anticipate his return. Don't you? Do you anticipate his return? Especially today. I do. As much as I want to see my family grow up. Some days you're like, Lord Jesus, come, right? For a believer, death is not fearful. Because we have a Savior who overcame death. We have eternal life. What great confidence we need to take with us on a day-to-day basis with that. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? There's a wonderful hymn I came across in my studies. O God, our help in ages past, beneath the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. 
Be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Now the other thing we have to do, if you look at verse 18, which is a great summary to this book if you've been here these few weeks. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To know our Savior better, to know his word. We progress in those virtues that Peter talked about in chapter 1. But look at the next part of that verse. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Him now until the day of eternity. You see, we glorify him today and we do it all the way until we see him face to face. That's the perspective. Our perspective must be fixed on the final goal. When the king returns or we're called home, And Peter has given us instruction in this book how to do that. The Bible is instruction on how to live our lives until then. Growing in knowledge, getting into his word, being firm in our faith, to be able to go out in this world and stand firm in our faith, stand firm in the truth. Eternal hope and an eternal promise is what we have. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, we have everything in Christ, remember? Remember? We have everything for life and godliness. And then he says, and if we do those things, through that we escape the corruption of the world. I love that verse, 1 Peter 1.8. Though you do not see him, but believe in him. And though you do not see him now, but you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We can do that if we're looking forward to when we do see him. And one thing we can't forget in this whole thing is that as we walk in this truth, as we live this out in our lives, as we live out this perspective, we have an obligation and a command in his patience and his purposes to share this truth with others, don't we? And we do it until he calls us home or until he returns. Just like Paul said to the church of Thessalonica, do not just be idle. Don't just sit there and wait for his second coming. Don't just sit and wait for it. Do the work of the ministry. Share the gospel. Go out and tell others of the hope that you have. The hope that you get to see Jesus Christ. Preach it. Share it. We have to. That is our call. That is our commission in this. Spurgeon said, out with the lifeboat. Man the lifeboat and let us take off from her all that we can and bring them to shore. God calls upon us until the world is utterly destroyed with fire to go on saving men with all our might. That's convicting. Live with an urgency and a fervor for eternity. That kind of sounds weird, right? But take a step back for a moment in your life and what this life is all about. with all these things that we know and all the things that we deal with in our day-to-day life to take a step back and look forward. Look forward to eternity with our Savior. I love this hope. It is so encouraging for us as believers in this dark world to look forward to this. I love this perspective. In so many of the songs we sing, we just sang one. 
So many of the songs we sing as we anticipate standing with Jesus Christ, anticipate when the trumpet blasts, anticipate seeing our God face to face become that much sweeter if we allow this eternal perspective to blossom in our hearts. Because that's in an overflow of your heart when you can sing. I'm ready. I want to come. I'm looking forward to seeing you. To reflect on the coming king, the glories that we will have in heaven, and the promise of eternal life. There's one more hymn I want to close with that we'll read. I will read to you. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. Every step is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb. Every burden's getting lighter. Every cloud is silver lined. There the sun is always shining. There no tear will dim the eye. At the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that is my portion may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me and I'm covered with his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. Remember who holds tomorrow and remember who holds eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we anticipate when we can see you, Lord. We anticipate to worship you, Lord, in heaven for all our lives for what you've done for us on the cross, Father. To take all that judgment, all that sin upon yourself, Lord. Us wretched creatures, though, not deserving of your grace and mercy. And yet, Lord, you did it. Father, I pray that we do examine our hearts to see if we truly look forward to that and how we live our lives and knowing that we just have a short amount of time on this earth to glorify you, to be used by you, to preach your gospel, that more might come into your kingdom and enjoy eternal life with you. Father, stir us up to be ministers of your gospel, your grace, and even your judgment, Lord. Because it's all in your word. It's all truth. Let us not stray away from the truth of your word. But preach it with boldness. Lord we thank you so much for this letter from Peter. I pray it ministers to our hearts tonight. In Jesus name. Amen.